You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 416 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. With this episode, we're going to continue our look at some things that were going on in a few spots other than the area around Chattanooga, Tennessee, where we finished up with the Chickamauga story arc. And before we start in on the siege of Chattanooga, which will be another major story arc, well, we thought we'd move around and talk about a few other things that were happening elsewhere around this same general time period in 1863. For example, we cast our eyes toward western Missouri and eastern Kansas and spent a couple of shows looking at the circumstances surrounding the Lawrence Massacre in August 1863. And now we thought we'd spend a couple or three episodes back in the Eastern Theater of the War, looking at what was going on with George Meade and the Army of the Potomac, and with Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, following the Confederates' retreat after their defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg. And this little story arc will culminate with the Battle of Bristow Station in October 1863. The Army of the Potomac that emerged after the bloody slugfest at Gettysburg was different in several significant ways. During those three fateful days at the beginning of July 1863, Major General George Meade commanded a force that totaled about 94,000 men. When the battle was over, federal casualties numbered more than 3,100 dead, 14,500 wounded, and 5,300 missing. Those staggering losses not only reduced the army's strength, but also affected its fighting ability and leadership. Some of the army's most experienced and capable veterans were among the dead and wounded, and they couldn't be easily replaced. By the time the fighting ended, many regiments were the size of early war companies. Heavy losses throughout the officer corps had an impact on the Army of the Potomac's effectiveness. Three of seven infantry corps commanders fell at Gettysburg. 
First Corps' John Reynolds was killed. Second Corps commander Winfield Scott Hancock was seriously wounded and wouldn't return until the spring of 1864. And Third Corps' Dan Sickles lost a leg and would never return. John Newton, who had taken over for Reynolds during the battle, was elevated to lead First Corps, and William French replaced Sickles. Governor K. Warren was given Second Corps during Hancock's lengthy absence. Of his remaining corps commanders, only Sixth Corps' John Sedgwick showed real command promise. Meade's former command, Fifth Corps, remained under George Sykes, who many believed never grew into his role as a corps commander. Eleventh Corps' Oliver Otis Howard, who turned in another mediocre performance at Gettysburg, remained at the head of his command, as did Howard Slocum with 12th Corps, but neither man inspired real confidence. Meade's own ability to command the army was called into question once the campaign ended in mid-July with the Confederate's successful retreat back below the Potomac River. Meade's elevation from 5th Corps to Army Command in the waning days of June, in the midst of an ongoing campaign, was accompanied by high expectations. His victory at Gettysburg seemed to justify Abraham Lincoln's faith in him. But after the campaign ended with the rebels slipping away, questions about Meade's aggressiveness and judgment soured Lincoln's initial elation. Lincoln considered removing Meade, but none of the Army's Corps commanders appeared to be better suited for the job, and the President wasn't ready to replace him with the general from the Western Theater. And, to Meade's credit, he was the only federal commander who had taken the Army of the Potomac and stood tall and defeated Robert E. Lee on the battlefield. Removing him, therefore, risked triggering a backlash and so, despite Lincoln's misgivings, Meade remained in command. When July ended, the Army of the Potomac was back in Virginia on the northern side of the Rappahannock River, with the Rebel Army camped to the southwest, protecting the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. If the Federal Army was in rough shape, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was in even worse condition. It lost over 23,000 men, dead, wounded, and missing, at Gettysburg. Although none of the three corps commanders had been killed or wounded, the Rebel Army nonetheless sustained heavy officer losses at the division, brigade, and regimental levels. From this point on in the war, replacing competent veteran field officers would be more and more of a problem for Lee. According to one modern source, three months after Gettysburg, the Army of the Potomac was back to about 90% of its former strength. In contrast, the Army of Northern Virginia was smaller by more than 40% of what it had been when it left Fredericksburg in June to begin the invasion of Pennsylvania. Desertion was rampant among many of the less enthusiastic Confederate troops. 
Lee wrote to Jefferson Davis on August 17th, saying, quote, The number of desertions from this army is so great and still continues to such an extent that unless some cessation of them can be caused, I fear success in the field will be seriously endangered. Despite the amount of foodstuff, livestock, and other loot carried off during the Gettysburg campaign, a lack of adequate supplies continued to plague Lee. The dramatic reduction in the quantity and quality of horses was especially concerning to Lee. The rebels had taken every horse they could lay their hands on during their time in Pennsylvania, but much to their dismay, they discovered that most of the stolen farm animals were poorly suited to army work and quickly broke down. Lee raised the alarm, knowing that the problem, if left unaddressed, would have a major impact on his artillery and cavalry. On August 24th, he wrote to Davis, telling him that, quote, Nothing prevents my advancing now but the fear of killing our artillery horses. They are much reduced, and the hot weather and scarce forage keeps them so. The cavalry also suffer, and I fear to set them to work. Ironically, George Meade had won the battle, but lost the trust of his commander-in-chief. While Robert E. Lee was defeated, but Confederate President Jefferson Davis continued to hold him in high esteem. Lingering health concerns, mainly tied to heart disease, convinced Lee he was no longer able to satisfy the rigorous demands of running an army in the field, and he tendered his resignation after the conclusion of the campaign. But Jefferson Davis would have none of it. Despite Lee's defeat at Gettysburg, and even if his health was an issue, Davis knew there was simply no one who could possibly replace Lee at the head of the Army of Northern Virginia. As July turned to August, George Meade was under mounting pressure from the powers that be in Washington to confront the Confederate Army in battle and defeat it. That Robert E. Lee's battered army managed to escape back to Virginia after Gettysburg didn't sit well with General-in-Chief Henry Halleck or Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. Lincoln and Halleck were increasingly frustrated by Meade's deliberate command style, and for his part, Meade was well aware of their receding faith in his abilities. On July 28th, Meade told Halleck that he was, quote, making every effort to prepare the army for an advance, end quote. However, before any forward movement could be undertaken, Meade first had to discover the enemy's exact position. To that end, he sent out a large reconnaissance in force, spearheaded by Brigadier General John Buford's 1st Cavalry Division, supported by the infantry of Major General John Newton's 1st Corps. On August 1st, Buford's 3,500 troopers splashed across the Rappahannock and started down the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, headed toward Culpeper. At 10 a.m., the Bluecoats encountered Confederate cavalry guarding the area. The rebel troopers were from Wade Hampton's 1,000-man brigade, 
temporarily commanded by Colonel Pierce Young, since Hampton was absent, recovering from his Gettysburg wounds, and wouldn't return to the Army until November. As the Yankee horsemen curled around both his flanks, Young conducted a grudging four-mile fighting withdrawal to Brandy Station. A further retreat brought the contending forces within three miles of Culpeper. At 4 p.m., Major General Jeb Stewart, commander of the Army of Northern Virginia's Cavalry Corps, appeared on the scene with reinforcements. Faster than you can say Jack Robinson, Buford found his force swamped by rebel horsemen. Now it was Buford's turn to conduct a fighting withdrawal, which he did, pulling back to the Rappahannock, where he linked up with the supporting Federal infantry that had come over to the south side of the river. Finding themselves outnumbered two to one, the Confederates broke off the action and went back to Culpeper. Between August 3rd and 9th, Confederate cavalry skirmished repeatedly with Buford's Union horsemen, who continued to hold a bridgehead on the south side of the Rappahannock. The purpose of the rebel pressure was to determine what the federal strength was on the south side of the river, and if Meade intended to bring his entire army across. The answer came on August 9th, when Meade, concerned about his supply situation, withdrew everyone back to the north side of the Rappahannock. There, matters remained for the next few weeks, until Robert E. Lee eventually became concerned about a federal turning movement that could trap him between the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers. So he transferred his army south of the Rapidan. By the last days of August, Lee had 60,000 men concentrated on the south side of the Rappahannock near Fredericksburg. As ever, Lee's thoughts tended toward taking the offensive. Writing to Corps Commander Lieutenant General James Longstreet, Lee told him, quote, I can see nothing better to be done than to endeavor to bring General Meade out and use our efforts to crush his army while in its present condition. Ever the gambler, Lee formulated a plan to cross the Rappahannock upstream from Fredericksburg and hit Meade from the rear. However, events in another theater of war caused that plan to be shelved. As you guys know, in a brilliant campaign of maneuver, the Tullahoma Campaign, Union Major General William Rosecrans had driven the Confederates entirely out of Middle Tennessee. In one fell swoop, that moved the front lines to the outskirts of Chattanooga. That crisis prompted the Confederate authorities in early September to detach Longstreet's Corps from Lee's army and send it to northwestern Georgia to reinforce Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee in an attempt to stabilize the situation. The loss of those 14,000 men from the Army of Northern Virginia left Lee with only about 46,000 troops to confront the 90,000-plus strong Army of the Potomac and left Lee with little opportunity to take the fight to the Yankees with any real chance of success. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. If the transfer of Longstreet's Corps to Georgia led Robert E. Lee to shelve his plans to take the offensive, George Meade was under no such constraints. Meade had been contemplating an advance that would start at Fredericksburg and consist of an overland campaign from there to Richmond. But first, he had to confirm whether the Army of Northern Virginia was, in fact, substantially reduced in numbers. To that end, Meade initiated another reconnaissance in force over the Rappahannock River on September 13th, using the Army of the Potomac's entire cavalry corps. Buford's 1st Division, the 2nd Division under Brigadier General David McMurtry Gregg, and Brigadier General Hugh Kilpatrick's 3rd Division. In addition, Governor K. Warren's 2nd Corps was assigned to provide infantry support to the cavalry's effort. After the Federal Cavalry crossed the Rappahannock at a number of points, it concentrated at Brandy Station on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, seven miles northeast of Culpeper. Kilpatrick's Union horsemen tangled with a strong force of rebel cavalry and an attached horse artillery battery, all under the command of Colonel Lunsford Lomax. The Confederate Cavalry Brigade of Brigadier General Rooney Lee, Robert E. Lee's son, came up and joined the fray, and the combat between the opposing horsemen intensified, until Jeb Stuart broke off the action and withdrew the rebel cavalry back to the Rapidan River. As tended to be the case with cavalry clashes, losses for the two sides were light, with the most notable casualty being Union Brigadier General George Custer, who was wounded in the leg and knocked out of action for the next three weeks. For the next ten days, the Federal Cavalry sought in vain to push across the Rapidan, but each attempt ran up against Confederate infantry arrayed in defensive positions behind the river. On September 21st, in an attempt to discover a way to flank the rebel positions on the Rapidan by way of a move to the west, Buford's and Kilpatrick's Union horsemen embarked on an extended scout around the Confederate left flank at the Robertson River. 
The next day, eight miles south of where the Federals crossed the Robertson, at a place called Jack's Shop, Buford ran into Jeb Stewart. While Buford's force pinned Stewart in place from the north, Kilpatrick circled around to strike the Confederates from the south. Surrounded, Stewart was forced to fight his way out to the south toward Gordonsville. On the 23rd, the Federal horsemen retraced their steps and returned to the north side of the Rapidan. The Union cavalry's successful scout across the Robertson River gave Meade the information he needed to march around the enemy's left, but, as it turned out, there would be no move around Lee's flank as the pendulum of war swung once more and affected Meade's plans. Exactly. You see, down in northwestern Georgia, Bragg's Confederates had bested Rosecrans Federals at the three-day Battle of Chickamauga on September 18th, 19th, and 20th. When the defeated Yankees fell back to Chattanooga, Lincoln and Halleck rushed to send help. The thoroughly alarmed powers that be in Washington decided to take Howard's 11th Corps and Slocum's 12th Corps away from Meade and send those 20,000 men by rail to Chattanooga to bolster the beleaguered Army of the Cumberland. With the transfer of those two corps knocking down the Army of the Potomac's numbers a good bit, Robert E. Lee's thoughts again turned to how he might strike the Yankees a telling blow, even though he was still missing Longstreet and his troops. Lee's plan was reminiscent of his campaign against John Pope in August 1862, which culminated in the Second Battle of Manassas. Here, Lee envisioned a rapid movement by his army around the Federal right and into Meade's rear. Then the Army of the Potomac, like Pope's the year before, hemmed in between the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers, would be forced to fight Lee on ground of the Confederate generals choosing. Scheduled to commence on October 10th, the Confederate movement would see the infantry of Lieutenant General Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps jumping off from Madison Courthouse and marching so as to circumscribe an inner arc circling around the Federal right flank. At the same time, Lieutenant General A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps would set out, also starting from Madison Courthouse, on a march that would constitute another wider arc around the Yankees' right flank. Shielding those twin-turning movements by 38,000 Confederate infantry would be 2,500 rebel cavalry under the direct command of Jeb Stuart. While the majority of the army embarked on that movement around Meade's right flank, Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry division, along with some supporting infantry brigades, about 7,000 men in all, were tasked with remaining behind and pinning the Federals in place there along the Rapidan River. Lee hoped his turning movement would come as a surprise to Meade, but it would not. On October 6th, four days before the Confederates started out from Madison Courthouse, Union signalmen on Pony Mountain, just south of Culpeper, intercepted enemy messages indicating a movement by Lee's army was imminent. Three days later, on October 9th, that same signal station 
spotted the Confederate buildup around Madison Courthouse. But George Meade, choosing to believe those signs indicated the Confederates were about to begin a withdrawal toward Richmond, issued orders that would set his army in motion to capture Orange County Courthouse, an important rebel supply base. However, to hedge his bets, just in case he'd misinterpreted the signs and the Confederates were actually moving against his right, Meade stationed Kilpatrick's cavalry division and some infantry, about 8,000 men in all, at the village of James City on his right, northeast of Madison Courthouse, as a blocking force. As it turned out, that federal blocking force served as a tripwire and alerted Meade to the danger to his right when the Confederates kicked off what came to be known as the Bristow Station Campaign on October 10th. At 6.30 that morning, Jeb Stewart's rebel horsemen stormed over the Robertson River at Russell's Ford, overwhelming the Union cavalry posted there. However, three hours later, Stewart found himself stalled in front of James City. By mid-afternoon on the 10th, after receiving reports that Confederate infantry columns were also advancing, George Meade had concluded that Lee's army wasn't retreating, but was, in fact, moving to outflank him. In the next episode, we'll see how the maneuvering of the two armies in the days that followed would culminate in the Battle of Bristow Station on October 19th. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Maps of the Bristow Station and Mine Run Campaigns by Bradley M. Gottfried. This is another volume in Savas Beatty's Civil War Atlas series. And just like Gottfried's other books in the series, this one is also excellent and a must-have resource for anyone wanting to learn more about what the Army of the Potomac and Army of Northern Virginia were doing after the end of the Gettysburg Campaign. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Custer 7th, Thomas B., Ian C., and Dallas J., And thanks to Erwin, Brian, and Michelle for their donations. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time for the Battle of Bristow Station. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.